You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So I want to pick up where we left off. We'll, we'll connect the dots from last week in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, but spend most of our time in verses 12 through 18. So join me as we read verses 1 through 18 in chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but, to, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. My prayer is that the very word of God here comes alive and causes us to do just that, to join in some gladness, to rejoice together in who Christ is. Even such that, as Paul invites us to do here, as we saw last week, we are to rejoice in something that in our culture and in our own hearts seems different, to, to rejoice in humility. This week, we're invited to rejoice in obedience. There was an appeal last week to steadfastness and unity, to, to live out and live in a manner that is worthy of, that commends the gospel, the finished work of Jesus. 
and an appeal to rejoice because of what Christ has done. We are free now. We don't have to compare ourselves to anyone else in pride. We're free now that as Jesus has in humility accomplished something and the, that God the Father exalted him as a result. So also we saw there that Jesus in humility was obedient. So while last week we were invited to rejoice in humility, this week we're invited to rejoice in something also that will seem different and awfully counterculture. That is to rejoice in obedience. Let me pose it to you this way. Answer this question as honestly as you can. How much do you enjoy being told what to do? How much do you enjoy it? How, to what extent did you wake up this morning and think, man, I'm all about doing what other people tell me to do? Man, I, I want a boss that tells me lots of things to do. I, I want a spouse that gives me tons of stuff to do. I want friends that tell me how to live and what to do. I want people around me to tell me what they want me to do. To what extent do you really enjoy being told what to do? Right? To what extent? I love it. I love submitting to the will of others. I love not doing what I want to do, and I love doing what others want to do. We hate it. We hate being told what to do. So forget rejoicing in it. We don't even like it. And as a result, when we're told what to do, we grumble. Murmur, who is that person to tell me what to do? Why would, I, why would I not do what I want to do? And we stand in opposition to the things people tell us to do. You get it? That's the context to which Paul is writing. Not just the situation that, that has emerged in Philippi, this church that he helped plant some maybe decade before and is reaching out to in great love and affection, but but it's the context of the human heart. I don't like to be told what to do. And yet he begins this particular passage and by saying, Therefore, my beloved, those of you that I love, as you have always obeyed, so now. In the same way that you have been obedient, so now, and gives us a picture. Now, notice what's beautiful here. The, the therefore, as I hope you, as, as clumsily and with all the, the punnery I can muster, any good Bible teacher will teach you that as you walk through the Bible and you come across a therefore, you meant to pause and ask, what is this therefore? And what we see is that based on then what he's already told us in that first, pass, that first part of the passage, that this is who God is. He, God has emptied himself in humility and in obedience, therefore, since Christ was exalted in his humility and obedience, so also we can follow in his footsteps, knowing that the place of humility, the place of obedience, is the place where God vindicates us. But notice, there's a, the passage that began in, in verse 27 of chapter 1, starting with the imperatives, the admonitions of this particular book, is sandwiched with deep and powerful and profound theological statements. It's like a theology and practicality sandwich. And we're kind of on the second half of it, where he says, practically speaking, here's now what you do. 
But in the same way that, that the beginning, the live a life in, in such a way that it's worthy of the gospel, it commends, it points to the gospel, it's centered around the gospel, because this is what Jesus has accomplished for us in humility and obedience. Now then, therefore, verse 12, connecting it back, as you have been obedient. Now notice his ethical appeal, this section in which he's telling us what it looks like to, to live in community is theology and practicality smashed together. And so for, for maybe for those of you who want intensely practical advice, we're meant to be confronted with deep and powerful theological treatises. Who is God? What has he done for us in Christ? And what does that mean, right? But then maybe, on your other, maybe you tend toward the other side and, and you live up in your head and, and you'd rather just kind of sit and ponder complex ideas. Paul confronts you as well and says, no, come out of that. What you believe has practical implications, and he presents the person and work of Jesus in that first section we read. But he shows us that true worship of Christ, to see him high and lifted up, to be the, the one given the name that is Lord and greater than all other, ultimately will play out in how we live. Christ above all is the center of our life together. And we're meant to see in this sandwich of deep theological truth about the nature of Christ and then the practical implications that we are living out as a result, what we believe is evident in the way that we relate. The way that we relate to everything as we saw, every manner of life we saw last week. But then we see here, it's also evident in the way you relate to others and the way you relate to what you worship. And so he says, therefore, as you have always obeyed. So notice, obedience is part and parcel to the Christian life. Obedience is part of what Christ has purchased for us. Now, this is rooted in the Great Commission, the, the last appeal of Christ, commanding his disciples to go and make disciples, teaching them to learn lots of good stuff. Make disciples, teaching them to win theological arguments. Make disciples, teaching them to be wicked smart and, and be able to answer any question. No, he says, make disciples, teaching them to obey. Obey everything that I've commanded you. And so for those of us who have heard the gospel, we, we get what is here a picture of what we call regeneration, a picture of what it means to be born again, a picture to be a new, a picture of what it means to be a new creation. We will obey whatever we worship. Maybe as we've been walking through this particular uh, book, I've, I've tried to show you there's, there ought not be anything such like, that there's not be no such thing as an arrogant Christian, right? Because humility is is the thing that Christ has purchased for us. We're, we're free now. We don't, have to, we don't have to compare ourselves to others because of Christ, but also there ought not be such thing as a disobedient Christian. Obedience is a part of following Jesus. It's part of what Christ has purchased for us. He hasn't just purchased our standing and salvation. He has also purchased our perseverance, our living in this world in such a way that testifies to our new citizenship in another world. And that's why for we saw last week that it's been granted to us not just to believe, but also to what? 
persevere in suffering for Christ's sake. So before we even go any further, if this might be the place where many of you have to just stop. You might just have to stop and say, look, I can't even go on to this next thing because I so very much hate obedience. But notice, our desires are changed because of what we behold. And I'll tell you this, maybe, maybe thank God, if, if you're here and maybe you're not a believer, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I'm so grateful that you've, you've managed to be within the sound of my own voice. I thank you so much for being here. And I just want to answer or, or, or maybe pose to you a question, like, what is it that you obey? Because maybe if you're like, oh, I don't obey anyone, that's not true. It's probably more likely that you do obey. It's just the thing that you obey, the thing that you are a slave to, is probably your own desires, your own hunger, your own need to be satisfied. You will obey something. You will obey what you value, and you will obey what, as Christians would invite you to consider, you will obey what you worship, the, the object of great value around which you have centered your life, will demand your obedience. And if you'll say, well, I don't obey anyone, you'll say, yeah, yeah, you do. You just, that's it. You obey yourself. You only obey your desires. And I would challenge you, fine, if you don't think you obey something, then please, disobey your desires for pleasure this week. Disobey, rebel against your desires for your own self-preservation and your own satisfaction. And you'll realize you're a slave. You will obey. But notice what we read. Christ was free. He was free from his own desires such that he could humbly and obediently lay down his own life to accomplish the will of the Father. He was free. He was more free than anyone else. He was more free than any of us. And, and he laid down his own desires for his own self-preservation, for his own pleasure, and endured pain endured rejection to purchase something for you and I, freedom from slavery to those desires. And this is our doctrine of having a new heart, of being changed by God. We, we obey then what we worship, and we have beheld Christ. And so, this is a picture of what it is that we mean to do. The Lordship of Christ, beholding His glorious self, ultimately is, is visible in our humility and our obedience. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Here we go. Christians are, are in many ways like living out the tension here that, that Paul so profoundly summarizes obedience as. So did you catch that? As you have always obeyed, so now. So whatever he's about to say is an equivalency to obedience. So in the same way, like as you have done this, so now also, you would immediately go, oh, there's, there's, there's some sort of direct connection. And so he's saying, as you have obeyed, right? So based on who Christ is and how that calls you to be willing to lay down your whole life for him, as, as you've been obedient, 
so now also, here's what obedience looks like. Now, he gives us a picture, first of all, of what obedience is. Again, a doctrine of our own, of our own uh, what we'll call generation, regeneration, being born again, being made a new creation, is this. That as, in my, excuse me, as in my absence, as well as in my presence, we, we see here, supervised or compelled obedience is not obedience at all. So in the same way that you have obeyed, so now, now that I'm gone carry on. You see, what he wants them to know is if you only obey when I'm around, if you only do what you know is right when someone's looking, then your heart hasn't been changed. And and we're meant to, at the very beginning here, to be invited to to realize something that we want to exalt as a church is that one of the great gifts of the Holy Spirit that that Christians begin to get more and more of is that we stop getting caught and we start confessing. We stop getting caught. Did you catch that? Like, in my presence. I saw you doing this. That was wrong. And and we start confessing. The great sign that the Holy Spirit has taken up residency in our own heart as a deposit for the promise that will be fulfilled when Jesus returns is that we stop getting caught Because notice what he's implying here. I may not be there, right? But guess who always is? I may not be watching, but guess who sees everything? And because we know the great price that's been paid on our account to offer us grace, we know that whatever comes to the surface, whatever God exposes in our own heart, He already has paid to forgive, cleanse, and restore. There's no sin that you and I can find out about ourselves. There's no inconsistency, weakness, or frailty that's a shock to God. And so therefore, as it comes to the surface, we know that God is only doing it to offer grace, to offer restoration. And we have conviction about sin rather than condemnation about being worthless. And so he's saying, look, more and more, the thing that that you ought to strive for is obedience, not when people are watching, not when I'm there, because what does that testify to, right? Like, well, oh, sure, you were real tough when the Apostle Paul was around, but now that he's gone, you're back to, right? And people know what's Lord for you. And yet, we, we greatly love the conviction of the Holy Spirit because it points to our sin in order to apply deep grace. I've heard it said this way, think of it as we experience that this, this, this practical outworking of what it means to be compelled by the Holy Spirit, no longer getting caught, right, but, but actually wanting to bring sin to the surface so that we might experience healing. One of the ways you know this is that if you ever feel like conviction of specific sin, you know it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always convicts of real sin to apply real grace. It's very rarely general. It's always specific. But if the feeling of very general and broad condemnation, shame, and guilt is something you experience, it's always from the enemy. Think of it this way. The Holy Spirit wants to invite you to hate your sin. Satan wants to invite you to hate yourself. The Holy Spirit gladly wants to deliver you from sin. The enemy wants to keep you in bondage under condemnation. And so he says, look, I want you to obey. 
not just because I'm watching, right? Not, not just because you have this general feel of shame when I'm around, but, but because you know that the Holy Spirit is only going to bring to the surface the things there, that he wants to apply grace and forgiveness to. So as you have obeyed, right, this picture of what it looks like to obey under the conviction of the Holy Spirit to experience mercy, as you've done this now, and he's going to explain the Christian life in such creative and powerful terms, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is saying, God has saved you. Work that out in your life. More literally, live it out. In, in the most general sense, he's, he's simply saying, look, like, be a Christian. Be a Christian. If, 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 if you're going to say, I'm with Christ, then you won't work against his work. If Christ's work is to, to save you, redeem you, to will and to work for his good pleasure, he delights to save you. He's not doing it out of obligation. He delights to save you. Then join him. Stop resisting. But notice, he, he says it in profound ways. Like, like Chris, you're going to have to wrestle with this one. Intentionally so. What does it mean to be a Christian? Work out your own salvation. Okay, well, you mean like participate in this salvation? And he's like, for it's God who's doing it. And here's what I'll tell you. This is a mystery that we can only receive by faith. That day by day, we realize that obeying God is actually something he's doing. Maybe uh, the best way I can say this to start is when he says, work out your salvation. One of the most helpful things I can lay as a groundwork here for considering how, to, how this will play out in your own life is this. Stop working for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. Live it out. Enact it, literally. Let it become visible in your working and living. And one of the best things I can tell you to understand this is to say, stop working for your salvation. Stop working on your salvation. Work out your salvation. Because the minute you're working for salvation, what does he say right after that? No, it's, that's not what this is for. You, you're not earning this. You can't possess this. This is something God's doing. It is God who is at work. And in some mysterious fashion, we're invited to participate in God's redemptive purpose in such a way that we mysteriously are, are, are in it and we're a part of it, and yet we have nothing to do with it. We're just glad recipients of it. I share this example with you when we're regularly painting things in our house, regularly engaged in projects, and my daughters like to help paint. And so they paint, and then my wife or I comes back over the top of them with a big, massive roller and rolls right over the top of whatever they painted. And so did they paint the wall? Yeah. Or did I paint the wall? Yeah. Get the picture? Like, yes, do this, participate. But know that there is an overshadowing work, a, as, as the, one of the first of these greatest hits we saw in chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will carry it out of the completion, right? That good work, jump in with him. Why? Because you know he'll finish it. You know he's going to do it. Don't obey hoping that God will catch you. 
Obey knowing that God is at work and will always finish what he starts. Stop working for your salvation. Stop work, start working out of it. Stop, start working from a place of being saved. Because look, look what he tells us. Our obedience is ultimately something God affects in us. God is doing this. God is the one who is at work. For is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, all I'll tell you this is, I think if you're, if you're like me, you probably tend and are tempted towards one side or the other to really love that first part. Yeah, save yourself. Work out your salvation. Or you tend towards like, God's got this. I gotta do nothing. And yet Paul says the Christian life is gladly by faith, embracing the mystery that God has finished it and yet has invited us to participate in it. Not because he needs us, but because he delights in us. Join me, he says. I'm going to do it, but join me. Not because I need your help, but because I delight in it. I love it when we're working together. I love it when you're not working against me. And so recognize you probably have a tendency towards either thinking like, no, this is all on me, or, nah, I got to do nothing, God's got this. One looks more like despair, and one of them looks like self-reliance. And both of them miss the good news that God came to be with us and for us in the flesh. And Christ has accomplished something. And because of what he has accomplished, he has also accomplished our participation in his great mission and redemptive purpose in the world. So friend, embrace this mystery by faith. God will finish the task. And now he's invited us to obey his commands. Not because he needs it, but because he wants it. He delights in it. He loves us. So notice what obedience is here. It's not begrudging submission to something God is imposing on us. It's something that God has changed us and convinced us of uh, the, his faithfulness such that we jump in with him. We, we jump in on the winning team, as it were. So maybe if you put those two together, this is how I would say it. Obedience is humble confidence in God. Look, I can live out my salvation. I can live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I can obey Jesus' commands to, to love, to serve, to lay down my life, to, right, to, to take up my cross. To, I, I, can, I can live in a way that, that is obedient to Christ's commands, and obedient to the, the word he's given and, and the people he's put in my life because I know and can be confident that God's the one who put them there. God's the one who's doing it. We often think that humility and obedience is just like weak and hopeless like oh fine i just i'll just i'll do it if you say so but he says here no there's a joyful confidence i'm gonna obey because i know this is what god delights in look you know this right hey will you take out the trash you know there's a way to take out the trash in begrudging submission that makes you and everyone else miserable. You know that. And you know what that feels like. And yet he's saying, no. Join me. Did you get this? God's saying, join me in my good pleasure. I delight to do this. It's pleasing to me 
to bring this about. And so therefore, we look and say, oh, don't you experience the pleasure of God? Not because we earn his pleasure, but did you catch this? But because Jesus has humbly and obediently earned it for us. I no longer have to be slave to my desires. I now can submit to a humble king who won't crush me. I know that his pleasures are for my good, are for my joy. His, his, his commands are, are an invitation to pleasure. Let that contradict and confound your current understanding of obedience. How do you know you got that obedience wrong? He tells us. Did you catch it? You're going to do these things without <laughs> grumbling or disputing. You see, now we're at the issue again that Paul has with the Philippians is that there was a deep dispute. There was, there was something going on and people, as we saw last week, were, were operating out of selfish ambition, the, a desire for rivalry to always win, to always be right, and conceit, a vainglory. They were hungry for glory instead of basking in the glory of God's finished work in Christ. They needed to be right and needed to win. And, and so we even see in chapter 4, he calls out the people who are, who are rivals. He calls out these people disagreeing by name. Oh my. And so he gets at the crux of the issue here is that, look, I'm telling you to exalt and behold Christ and His glory because it will free you from, you know what it looks like when you take out the trash and don't really want to. Grumbling and disputing. Grumbling and disputing. It's meant to now invite a, what he goes on as a, a basic tear of Old Testament quotes. He's calling to mind the grumbling and disputing Israelites who were doing what? Wandering through the wilderness. The illusion he's making in, in that, but also the, that they're, they're meant to be without blemish in the world. That, that's a reference to Deuteronomy where God's people were indicted because they were not blameless. They were the opposite. They were the crooked and twisted generation. And they're called to shine like lights. Like, like we see an allusion to Daniel here that, that God's going to do something that's going to make his people a bright shining light to the nations. And, and so he's making reference to something. He's making reference to God's redemptive story through his people. And he's saying one of the ways you know, one of the ways you know you haven't truly experienced the pleasure of God and his mercy that we don't deserve is you look like the wandering Israelites. And make no mistake about it. They grumbled and complained. They even said, I wish I could go back to slavery. I wish I could go back to people telling me what to do, because at least then I'd have what I want. And look what he's saying here. He's basically making it clear. Look, when you experience God's good pleasure to invite you into his purpose for your life and the redemptive purposes he's enacting in the world, you begin to have joy. That's where the passage ended, right? Join me in being glad and rejoicing. But the evidence that that's absent, the evidence that there's Work to be done in your heart and mind is the presence of grumbling and disputing. You're complaining like the Israelites. Right? It's as if we're to say, like, work out your salvation for God's working. Right? You could just ask uh, anybody uh, who claims to be a Christian. 
oh, Jesus saved me. One of the best things you could ask. Hey, how's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? You get a great answer. Same thing is true. Oh, you're grumbling and complaining and wandering like the Israelites? How'd that work out for them? How did that story end? We find that God was content to let an entire generation die and they're wandering and grumbling and disputing so that the next generation could experience his promise. Notice, God wanted them. And if he didn't have them, he was content to let them wander and die to demonstrate his fulfilled promise on the people that were his own possession. You know what this is like, this this term grumbling, right? Like this murmuring, literally. That's that's the best best definition in the Greek. That's, That's it. And here's, I think you already know what that means. I think you already know what you murmur and, and mutter under your breath against. I think you already know what that's like. Maybe you're more introverted, and so it doesn't actually come out. But you know what this is like. You know what it is to, to see something you don't want and, and just scoff at it. The second word, that, that they're disputing. Like, it isn't just that they were disagreeing. It, that's not what it's saying here. It's saying that in their disagreement, it escalated to a dispute. Now, we saw last week that division in the church is not a result of disagreement. It's a result of arrogance and pride and lack of humility. And so what we see here is that, that also division in the church isn't just about a lack of humility. It's a disobedience. It's a lack of what we describe here is the, the crux of that phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, The emphasis of that phrase is not on work out. The first phrase is with fear and trembling. Just think about that for a minute. Literally, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation. The posture we're meant to have as we seek to obey God is with self-deprecation. We have, I'll give you a word to, to look up. We are obsequious before God. We shake. Paul uses the same language elsewhere in the New Testament. There's, there's a sense in which we're like, I don't deserve this. I'm unworthy of this. I, I can't even look. I, I'm, I'm, I'm shaking with awe. That, that's how I'm engaging in God's redemptive purpose in the world. Not arrogantly, like I can do this. And when you begin to do that, it, it begins to put to death the, this murmuring or grum, grum, you know, grumbling, but also the disputing. It's okay to disagree. Think about it like there's a difference between having a good question and being questioning. Like there's a difference between having good questions to seek understanding and being a full-time interrogator. Because the other, if we're going to admit this to each other, it's just cynicism. A deeply rooted bitterness. Would you just join me for a minute? When you and I don't just ask questions, we don't just want to solve disagreements, but we are disagreeable. We, we have to disagree. We don't know how to defer to anyone else. Just, just join me in confession. That's just a deep bitterness. That's just a deep sadness or anger. That's just a deep discontentment. It's just a deep lack of trust that God actually 
is working together all things for our good. He's If I were in charge, or if I did it, I would do it this way. And so, one of the ways that you can do this, just ask someone. Do you find me to be a person that doesn't grumble or complain? I mean, let's be honest right now. I think I said this last week, but like, we're in a time of, of deep polarization. We disagree across lots of topics. Let's, let's be clear. This is a really good time to be an interrogator, a really good time to be a questioner and gain all the praise of your peers. But just know, did you catch this? You're going to do this without grumbling or disputing. In order that, verse 15, you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Where? And for what purpose? In the midst of your present generation. In the midst of the crooked and twisted generation. Just know, fine, this is a great time to be a grumbler right now. It's a great time to be a scoffer. It's a really great time to be a questioner, to be an interrogator of all things. But just know, when you do so, you obscure the name of Jesus and you kill your witness. Oh, and by the way, you destroy Christ's church. See, look, there's a way in which we are called to live such that, did you catch it? Mission is accomplished. And here's how you know you have something to work on, right? Trying this at our house, okay? I dare you not to complain today. I dare you not to complain this week. I dare you. I dare you not to grumble or like, you know, you know in disputing. Well, I know, but I, I dare you. Absolutely dare you. Let me put it in his terms. I dare you. Did you catch this? To be blameless and innocent. Blameless and innocent. And if you find yourself saying, I can't do that. Friend, Hear the good news. Jesus and his perfect humility and perfect obedience is your hope. And you can say with me, I can't stop complaining. Boy, if it weren't for Jesus and his obedience, my disobedience would sink me. There's a lesson he wants us to learn here. And and that's, in many ways, again, we're, we're called to have these allusions to the Old Testament like, How'd that work out for the grumbling, complaining Israelites? And what I would say to you practically, you might be in a a situation where you're wandering and grumbling and complaining, and like the Israelites, God's trying to teach you a lesson that you've been refusing to learn for some time now. And maybe you're thinking, God will break. Friend, I want to encourage you. You will. You'll break before he does. And so if you're not blameless and innocent, then join the rest of us in repentance and fear and trembling, right? We experience this mystery every single week. I stand in front of you and I speak for God. I'm I'm working, I'm, I'm speaking for God. And yet, no, God's speaking. I don't have any original thoughts. And so can you imagine how you can say that in such a way that's arrogant versus the way we ought to say it, which is how I feel, like with fear and trembling? Oh my goodness, I'm about to speak for God. 
The reason is that you now, because of Christ, you shine as lights, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Notice what he also does. Remember I told you this is such a loving letter? Hear his, just the humanity of Paul. He, he just kind of exposes now that mission is key. Our mission, what the world sees us as, is important here. It matters. What you do and the attitude with which you do it testifies to something. How you endure suffering points to something, right? Either you endure suffering like Christ and therefore point to him as you endure it, or you don't. And mission will expose it. Your posture to the outside world will expose you. And he makes a very personal appeal. Look, in light of this, because he quotes all these Old Testament things, consider this. We are a part of the story of God's revelation to the world. Did you see what he did there? He quoted Exodus. He quoted Numbers. He quoted Deuteronomy. He quoted Daniel. And he said, look, you are a part of God's story. God is introducing himself to the world. And the way you're doing it is visible in the way you interact with one another. So stop obscuring Jesus by grumbling and complaining. Start living in a certain way. And he, and he humanizes himself. I love it. He appeals to the heart. He says, look, at the very least, would you, would you make me proud? Not pride in the way that he's trying to be self-sufficient, but he's saying, in some terrifyingly mysterious way, the extent to which Paul's life is wasted depended upon them. And so in some terrifyingly mysterious way, see me as a human, the extent to which my life as a pastor is seen as a waste or not, is up to you. So, just as a favor, in light of Hebrews, make it easy on me. Look, I'm going to do my best to present you blameless and sanctified before Jesus. You do your best such that it will go well with me. Such that before Christ, in some mysterious way, they'll say, how'd you do? How'd that work out for you? And I'll just go, look at them. Make me proud. Not that you're obsessed with winning my approval. That's silly and stupid. But notice what he does. He, he humanizes himself. And I'll just say personally, to the extent that you dehumanize or celebritize me, that I'm not a human, a brother, and a, a father figure for you, will hinder your ability to do this. And so he makes a very personal appeal. Look. I'm giving my life to you. And I'll say the same thing. I'm going, to give my, I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to give it all away. Join me in gladness. Join me in believing and knowing that it's worth it. Because a bad attitude, a lack of rejoicing and gladness is disobedience. So let me land on this. All this, I'm trying to convince you that obedience is worthwhile, that you can, because of Christ, he has purchased our obedience. And, and maybe even then you're sitting there saying, I won't do it, Jonathan. I cannot do it. I will not obey. I do not want to obey. Well, thank you. Confess that. But I've got two things to soften your heart towards obeying this good God. And they're right there. Did you catch the first one? His good pleasure. Did you catch that? Zephaniah says that in light of judgment, God actually delights in and sings over the people he has redeemed. It is his good 
pleasure. The Lord is not angry at you. He has poured out his wrath on Jesus. He's not disappointed in you. Jesus has met all the approval and purchased it for us. Friend, he delights in you. He delights to love you. He delights to forgive you. He's not impatient with you. Two, did you catch it? You're a star. I know you always wanted to be. But notice there, he has imperative language. You're meant to delight, you're meant to do these things, do these things. But did you catch the way there wasn't uh, an imperative? He didn't say, you should be like lights in the world. No, he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Friend, because of Christ, you are a light. God has implanted something in you that the world needs to hear about and see. God has implanted something in you. His redemptive purposes have been implanted into you because of Christ. Not you should or could, you do. You are. You have an undeniable, indisputable, and unquenchable fire. You shine as lights in the world. Friend, you don't want to obey I got it. Would you behold the God who delights in you? Would you behold the God who, without any merit on our own part, makes us stars in the world? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your mercy, and we thank you so much for the ways in which your will is something that is mysteriously being apprehended through our own faith and lived out. God, we confess that this is a mystery too great for us to put into words, and so I ask that even now you would take my frail and feeble attempt to explain the matchless and mysterious work that you've accomplished through Christ into ideas and thoughts and make it understandable and believable to us. If there's someone, maybe we've we're hearing this good news and, and it just seems like, like you're not worth submitting to. Would you even now behold yourself? You, you want to help us through this. You want to give us wisdom. You desire to help us to know what we ought to do next. Shape us into the kind of people that are changed and transformed. Shape our will such that we want yours. Shape our desires such they're in line with yours. Fill us with the delight that you have poured out with us towards us in Christ. We ask this for his sake. Amen.